You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. The scripture reading for this morning is taken from Romans 8. The sermon is uh, based on uh, Lord's Day 20 about the Holy Spirit and uh, the connected one of the one of the connected scriptures passages is Romans 8 and we'll read the first 27 verses Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemns sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of your sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth 
right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. This morning's message is based on Lord's Day 20. So let's read that together. Lord's Day 20, and we will actually focus on the second part of that Lord's Day. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, He is together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Second, He is also given to me to make me by true faith share in Christ and all His benefits, to comfort me and to remain with me forever. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it has been said many times that the Holy Spirit is the neglected or forgotten person of the Trinity. For we hear so much about God the Father. It is He who created all things and who sustains all things. It is the Father that we pray to in the Lord's Prayer. It is He who declares us innocent in Christ. And indeed, we also hear so much about God the Son, for it is He who became man, died on the cross, atoned for our sins, rose on the third day, ascended into heaven, and now reigns over all, seated at God's right hand. So with so much to say and adore and praise the God the Father and God the Son, it might even be expected that God the Holy Spirit is somewhat sidelined. And some will also say, by God's own design, the Spirit's main task is to point us not to Himself, but to the Father through Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John contains many sayings of Christ about the Holy Spirit. For example, in John 16, verse 13, Christ says, The Spirit doesn't speak on His own. Rather, the Spirit speaks what He hears from the Father and the Son. So we could conclude that the Holy Spirit does not even want to be in the center. Yet, do we give enough attention to the third person of the Trinity? For we know, as we read in the first part of the Lord's Day, He is together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. The Spirit is God, and therefore He wants our praise and worship as well. And though the Spirit's delight is to point away from Himself as God 
He too demands our honor, submission, and thanksgiving. So why is it so hard to speak of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives? Or why is it that Christians might neglect maybe four times out of five to pray for the Spirit? Why is it that He is called the forgotten person of the Trinity? Certainly the fault lies not with Scripture. The Holy Spirit is revealed throughout the Old and the New Testament with His work becoming far deeper and richer and clearer in the New Testament. If we read our Bibles carefully, we'll see just how much the Spirit does for us and did for God's people in the past. Maybe the fault lies then with the Heidelberg Catechism itself. Is it because our beloved Catechism, that especially in Reformed churches, the Spirit is said to be forgotten? For look at this short Lord's Day 20, only seven brief lines long. To be sure, the next two Lord's Days also deal with God the Holy Spirit. And it is also noteworthy that the Holy Spirit is mentioned throughout the Catechism, no less than 30 different times in different question and answers. But when it comes to who He is, and that is, what do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit, the Catechism is quite short. Maybe this Lord's Day should have been longer. Maybe it could have been longer. Yet make no mistake, each brief statement, those five lines in this question and answer, is chock full of scriptural truth and comfort. And so this morning we will examine each part of the second half of Lord's Day 20. So this me- the message this morning come- comes under the heading, uh, or is titled, God the Holy Spirit. And we'll look at four aspects of the Holy Spirit as we see that in the answer in the Catechism. Namely, one, the Holy Spirit is given to me. Two, to make me by a true faith share in Christ and all His benefits. Three, to comfort me. And four, to remain with me forever. So to repeat, God the Holy Spirit, we look at four aspects, namely that He is given to me to make me by a true faith share in Christ and all His benefits, to comfort me, and to remain with me forever. So God the Holy Spirit is given to me. Whenever we talk about our salvation, we must constantly and humbly return to that one simple word, grace. There is that famous quote that sums this up. There, but for the grace of God I go. So also when it comes to the person and work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we stand in awe and exclaim, amazing grace. For the Holy Spirit, like everything else that God bestows upon us, is God's free gift. That is, the Holy Spirit is granted to us even though we don't deserve Him. He is sent into our hearts, though in our view He is actually unwelcome. Yes, it's God who decides to bless us with His Spirit in this way 
and at His time and because of His love. He is given, says the Catechism, for we'd never have the Spirit of our own accord. And if we didn't have the Spirit, what then would we have? Who or what would occupy us? Jesus says in Luke 11, verses 24 to 26, that even the house that is swept clean must be filled with something, whether good or bad. Jesus is speaking symbolically. uh, Symbolically, the, the house is referring to a person. So even a house that is swept clean must be filled with something. And if it is swept clean and unoccupied, the evil that once existed will return with even more intensity and the final condition of that man will be worse than the first. In Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul lays out the two options available to us, painting a stark contrast. He exhorts us in verse 16 where we read, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So we need the Holy Spirit, or the only thing we do is gratify our sinful desires. All we have to do is look at the world to see this truth in action. Dear friends, we need to be filled with the Spirit of holiness, or we'd be empty of any good and stuffed full of pollution. So let us faithfully pray, merciful God, send us your Spirit. And when we pray this, we must remember the gift of the Spirit cannot be earned. He can only be given. This treasure of God's amazing grace rescues us from a life of never-ending, on the never-ending treadmill of chasing our own salvation. For how could we ever hope to earn the Spirit from God if left to our own devices? The Spirit can't even be invited into your heart. For what darkened heart knows enough to look to the one true God for light? So the Spirit of God must be given, and He must be sent. And then He unfailingly unfailingly gets to work. The Holy Spirit gets to work in the home, giving parents wisdom to raise their children, helping spouses forgive each other, making that house swept clean, full of the aroma of Christ. The Holy Spirit gets to work in the church, spreading fellowship abundantly, equipping the saints for service, giving elders and deacons the love and insight they need for their tasks. The Holy Spirit gets to work in individual believers. That's the emphasis of the catechism. It is very personal and real. The Spirit is given to me. The Holy Spirit, true and eternal God, has been granted to me personally, a sinner, and has taken up residence in my heart as in a glorious temple. This truly is amazing. So the Holy Spirit is given to me personally, but for what purpose? The Catechism continues. To make me by true faith share in Christ and all His benefits. This brings us to the second point. 
But hold on, someone might object. Is the Spirit really given to me? Do I have the Spirit? Do you have the Spirit? How can I say that with such confidence that this, the Spirit has been sent my way or your way? For when Paul paints that contrast between spirit life and sin life, don't his words find me on the wrong side of the fence? After all, those selfish desires of my heart are so powerful. I can't possibly deny them all of the time. And looking at my own heart, I realize it is not pure. We just read the law, and that convicts us of this reality. Yet again, we rest in the grace of God. He gave us His promise. And we believe that God always keeps His promises. At our baptism, the Holy Spirit assured each one of us that He would dwell in us and make us living members of Christ. He promised in His Word, and we see it in our lives, even in tiny ways, that He's delivered on what He said. We see the evidence that God has given His Spirit. What is that evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Well, we read from Romans 8. The title of Romans 8 uh, in the Niv, you'll see, is Life Through the Spirit. And as we read it, and as we did, as we read it, we can see why. Paul describes the life in the Spirit. For example, in verse 6, Paul says, the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Look for the evidence, beloved. Is your mind alive? Is your mind being renewed? Well, answer this. Are you thankful for God's blessings and all that He has done and is doing in your life? That is the work of the Spirit. Do you understand at least some of what you read in Scriptures? Do you believe the Gospel message? That's also the work of the Spirit. Do you hate what is evil and desire to do what is right? That is also the work of the Spirit. And it can only be the Spirit's doing that we have true calm, even when there's every reason to be upset or anxious. We might be worrying, fretting, trembling, but suddenly there's peace. Not that we reached a conclusion by our own thoughts, nor had a solution given from above, but the Spirit gives to our minds and hearts even only for a few moments, a beautiful sense of peace that we may carry on in our troubles and be of good courage. There is that well-known passage in Psalm 46 that sums this up. Be still, the Spirit says. Be still and know that I am God. And I know that the Spirit has been given to me when I can confess with all my heart, Jesus is Lord. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, where Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So confessing His name is also evidence. I know what Christ has done, and I am confident that He did it for me. Here is the Spirit's greatest task, to point us to the cross, 
to the empty tomb, and to the Lord in heaven above. Yes, by the Spirit's power and grace, we believe this unbelievable gospel message. By the Spirit, we find in Christ all we need. We appeal to His blood as our only hope. It's this bond of Spirit-worked faith that unites us with our Savior. It, re- it unites us so close that we even share in Him, as the Catechism says. We convicts share in Christ's righteousness. In fact, through faith, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. We who are by nature children of wrath share in Christ's status now as God's dearly beloved children. And the benefits of Christ conveyed through the Spirit just keep on coming. First is that gracious declaration of our innocence through faith. Then is the unfolding of new life. For one by one the misdeeds of the body are put to death, as Paul says in Romans 8.13. With the Spirit's resolve, I can put my jealousy of others to rest. With the Spirit's power, I kill that hatred lingering in my heart. With the Spirit's protection, I turn my eyes away from those things that tempt me. My sinful mind, once hostile to God and opposed to His law, as it says in verse 8, verse 7, my sinful mind, once hostile to God and opposed to His law, now delights in the same things that delight the holy God. So we are no longer controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. What we are describing here is the fruit of the Spirit. Paul elaborates on this in Galatians 5. Galatians 5, verses 23 to 25. I'll read that. Or 22 to 25. Well-known passage. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit." And so one by one, the fruits of the Spirit bud and blossom and come to life. There's a whole list there in Galatians 5. On fig trees that were once fruitless, we see branches filled with the beginnings of love for our enemies, joy in all circumstances, peace with our fellow saints, patience under suffering, kindness to all people, goodness in heart, faithfulness to God, gentleness in speech, and self-control, even when stirred up by our own passions and desires. The spiritual fruit on our branches is small, and maybe it's sometimes a bit sour or a bit spotted with disease, but it is fruit when there could, when before there was none. And this means that the Holy Spirit is present. This is evidence of His work. 
To be sure, our assurance is never in ourselves and in what we do. But our assurance is in the Word of God. In the Word of God that so powerfully confirms is, which is so powerfully confirmed by His Holy Spirit in our lives. Know that contrast described by Paul is still not fully resolved. Is our, is our life spirit-led or is it sin-led? As he says, in this life, these two are in conflict with each other. All we need to do is read Romans 7 to see this conflict. We don't always do what we want or what God wants. It's a seesaw battle. But those in Christ are being controlled by the Spirit and not by the sinful nature. And the fact that there is still is this battle is also good. This is also evidence of the Spirit working. Therefore, expect to follow the same road as Christ, the road of self-denial and suffering, the road of temptation and trial. Follow this road and you'll reap the glorious benefits of being united to your Savior. And the Holy Spirit is given to me to comfort me. Our third point. Through the Holy Spirit, we're also comforted during our spiritual warfare. In our trenches, in our fear, in our wounds, the Spirit comes near and gives comfort to the troops. Unfortunately, this word comfort has taken on a very vague meaning today. What is comfort? To many, it is a happy feeling, a setting of ease and relaxation. But when Scripture... And the Catechism speaks of the Spirit as our comforter. There is nothing fuzzy about it. Jesus says in John 14, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Counselor to be with you, the Spirit of Truth. In older translations of this verse, the Spirit was referred to as the Comforter or Helper. So Counselor, Comforter, Helper, paraclete, all descriptions of the Spirit's tasks. And common to all these titles is that the Spirit speaks. He is actually a defense counsel who protects us with his arguments. The Spirit is an advocate or paraclete who comes alongside us and pleads our case. We already know that Christ is our advocate in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He's in heaven pointing to His body once broken, asking for the things we neglect and for the things that He knows we need. Beloved, then, how deeply aware of our small lives is God the Father. Not only does Christ pray for us, but so does the Holy Spirit. We saw that in Romans 8, verse 26, where it says, We don't know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. God's Spirit fills us. Therefore, we cannot run from the Spirit. We cannot flee from His presence. Wherever He goes, we go. We sang about this in Psalm 139. If we make our bed in the depths, He is there. 
If we rise up early and even travel to the other side of the world, He is there. The Spirit sees what's going on in your heart, even if no one else does. The Spirit hears what we murmur in our minds, even if no one else hears. The Spirit knows the deepest recesses of your life, even if it's buried under a mile of rock. This humbles us and at times maybe shames us. But more than anything, it comforts us. It comforts us for the Spirit dwelling in our hearts knows us perfectly and prays for us perfectly. Between Him and the Father, with groans that words cannot express, there is told my secret confession of guilt, our anguished confusion, our unspoken cry for help. Beloved, God knows. God knows because the Spirit is given to you and the Spirit is praying for you. What a comfort indeed. We are richly comforted by what the Spirit says to God on our behalf, and we're also comforted by what the Spirit says to our hearts. For in Romans 8, verse 16, Paul says, He testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, it's not hard for us to believe that we are biological children of our parents. But if God told me out of the blue I was His child, I'd have no reason to believe it. For what would the Almighty God want to do with me, a lowly human? I certainly don't resemble Him in any way. But we read in Romans 8, the the Spirit testifies directly to my heart what otherwise would be unbelievable. Truly, you are a child of God. As we read the pages of Scripture, the Spirit unmistakably echoes God's Word in our hearts. This forgiving Father is your Father in heaven. This patient God will be patient with you. This wise Father will instruct every one of His children, including you. By the Spirit, we hear an inner testimony that we're not orphans. We're not children of wrath, but we are children of God. Paul again makes that point in Romans 8, verse 15 to 17, where I will quote, But you receive the Spirit of Sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So let us cry it with all our hearts, because we believe God is our Father. Christ opened this door for our prayers, and the Spirit confirms that this door will never be closed. This brings us to our last point. The Holy Spirit will remain with me forever. We've now seen just a glimpse of what the Spirit is doing in our lives, but knowing what we do have, we might fear all the more that God would take this away. For who would want to go back to that old life without the Spirit? Without the Spirit, all we could look forward to would be a reunion with our old nature, which is the devil, the world, and our own flesh. 
in our defeats, in our moments of guilt and sadness, in our moments of weakness, we might indeed feel that the Spirit has left us. For sometimes we can no longer say those words, Abba, Father. Sometimes we can't rejoice anymore in the table of the Lord. We might even think we have sunk to the depths or gone to the far side of the sea without God's Spirit being anywhere near us. Such thoughts must have crossed David's mind too after his sin with Bathsheba. He prays desperately for the Holy Spirit, lest he lose that sense of God's nearness forever. We see that when he cries out in Psalm 51, verse 11, which we also sang about, where he cries out, Do not cast me from your presence or take me from your Holy Spirit. With God's, without God's promise, sorry, without God's promise that the Spirit will remain, we stubborn sinners would wither in uncertainty. But we would not have that inner peace. But Jesus says, as we can again read in John 14, the Father will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Notice that word forever. Beloved, the Spirit will not leave us. The writers of the catechism didn't make this up themselves. These are the words of our Lord Himself. The Spirit will not ever leave us. He will not ever abandon us to the pit. He will not ever let our hearts be completely overgrown by thorns and thistles. Those fruits that are slowly growing, He will continue to nourish. Those perfect prayers that you still need, He will continue to offer. The Spirit will be with us forever, lest Christ lose any of the sheep that the Father has given Him. The Spirit remains with us, and so Paul encourages us to keep in step with the Spirit. Read that verse in Galatians 5.25. Keep in step with the Spirit. Paul uses a military image of troops walking in a straight line in formation. Christians must also keep in step with the Spirit, following His lead, keeping His time. Where He leads, we must go. What He directs, we must do. So let us live by the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. And the Scriptures tell us what the way of the Spirit is. Scriptures tell us where we have to put our feet if we're going to keep in step with the Holy God. So then, pray for the Spirit to fill you. Read in the Bible your marching orders for the week. He will always lead our feet on level pathways until Christ returns on His great day when we will finally reach our home. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.